1: Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me, every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zippybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zippyclasses.com. And I recently opened a book His work has appeared in Guernica, Fairy Tale Review, The Master's Review, Electric Literature, Craft, and elsewhere. He earned an MFA in Creative Writing and a PhD in Comparative Literature at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's an Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at Michigan State University. Welcome, Shastri. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. We're going to discuss your debut novel, The Sea Elephants. Look at this gorgeous cover, by the way. Oh, my gosh. I
3: know. It's it's so amazing. I really lucked out. Oh, my
1: gosh. For those listening... How would you even describe this? Navy blue background of a painted face looking, you know, red and yellow and white. Anyway, I'm doing a terrible job. It's really gorgeous.
3: (laughs) It's, uh, gorgeous. It's the mask of one of the characters in the story. Yeah, it's perfect.
1: Okay, why don't you tell listeners what your book is about?
3: Uh, The Sea of the Fence is a queer coming-of-age novel set in 90s India. I started writing this book about a character who leaves home seeking intimacy out in the world, but I also wanted to add nuance to what intimacy means, because we typically think of intimacy as romantic, but there are other kinds. And this book explores that the um, intimacy that exists between friends in uh, found family, between storytellers and listeners. And so the character finds all this, but ultimately he also falls in love with himself. So it's this journey where he goes out seeking intimacy, but falls in love with himself.
1: Oh, <laughs> wonderful. I was really taken with the, from the very beginning of this book, when his dad, what is this? When his dad returns, right? He's 16 years old and his, he's just lost his twin sisters, which you explained several chapters in how it happened, which is so harrowing and, you know, partially his fault. He feels totally responsible, of course. And then his dad, who he's never met, comes home after the loss of his sisters and is horrific and violent and I mean, I was literally like reading, and I had to like grab my daughter, and she's like, "What? What?" I was like, "Oh my gosh, his dad." Just... <laughs> anyway, so there's a lot of feeling, like from the beginning, we're wrapped up in emotion of pain and uncertainty and loss, and you know, it's it's this like amazing introduction to to every sense. Honestly, tell me about you know, even starting to write this book, why you wanted to write this book, all of it, like, and how you. How you pack so much in, in such a graceful kind of way as an introduction, or the first part even.
3: Thank you. I think for a lot of times as somebody who is queer and a lot of my extended family um, is very homophobic. And I, as long as I lived in India, I thought I was asexual. I had not come out until I came to the U.S. and actually started writing this book. When I workshopped this novel, my professor, Sabina Marie, said, this is dying to be a gay love story. Why aren't you letting it be one? And uh, Mark was his friend in those early drafts. Uh, And she was very empathetic in the way she pointed to specific elements of the subtext where it was clear that Shagun desires Mark. So I took therapy and I came out on the last day of her workshop uh, and she hosted this potluck at her place. And so then I had to rewrite this whole book as a queer love story. And then my own coming out just had a lot of problems with some members of my biological family and a lot of my extended family. And in some ways, my found family in the US, other queer friends was so supportive and helped me embrace uh, myself and be comfortable in my skin. Since those personal experiences really shaped the next version of the story. So uh, even the Shaban moves from that sort of space of violence, he finds Saya and Ru and Sue and all these friends, and Mark, his boyfriend, they sort of help him be comfortable with who he is. So I think for me, I just wanted to talk about how It is is like an anxiety inducing experience being queer, um, especially when you come from communities that are that homophobic, but there is always a way out. And that's what I wanted this book to be about. Uh, So it starts in that very difficult place, but moves into a place of hope.
1: Wow. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe that writing that your teacher is the one who could pick up on that. And I mean, what a workshop. I mean, (laughs) that's amazing. What? was it like though and how is it now with your family who is so unsupportive have you cut ties with them and did they accuse you of being gay back then and you denied it or like what was what was the difficulty between you and your family like before and how is it now
3: um, it was, I think it all came up because I was refusing to have an arranged marriage as the Indian mm-hmm. yeah. show Netflix shows. That's a huge part of the Hindu culture in India. Um, and I kept pushing back against it. Um, And then I came into the U.S. And I, because I was posting publicly gay writing, short stories that got published online and essays, uh, it was out there. So one of my uncles found out and then uh, one of my cousins found out and they told my parents. uh, And it just became a very um, explosive situation. And I remember there was one year I was in a student visa and then I had to get it extended because I went into a Ph.D. program after my master's. I did not feel safe going back in India to India so I ended up going to Canada to get my visa extended that year Um, so it was like a difficult five years but eventually even if not a full-fledged acceptance it's gone to the point where we are fine as long as you don't talk about it directly to us Mm -hmm. um but on the, the positive side, you know, my sister, one of my sisters, her kids were born and raised here and they're very open-minded, especially my niece. And my niece actually read my novel. And the last time I visited my sister's family, she had questions about the book that she very specifically had questions about the book. So it was nice to sort of get to that point where my niece who's in college now, she and I could, she's my first family member who's read the book. So I think there are like those openings in. Because of her children, my sister sort of come to a point of acceptance Hmm. because I think she realized her kids are born and raised here and she has to, in some ways, open her ideas of what is acceptable. And to her credit, she's really done that well. So it's a she and my niece are two members of the family who sort of come to accepting it, uh, my niece more so in a more open way.
1: Wow. And in this explosive time, was there violence against you the way it happened in the book or things like that? Like,
3: um, Not to that extent. There was a definite threat of violence, which is why I didn't go back. Um, mm-hmm. That was how I found out about conversion therapy because there was this threat that a certain family member explicitly said that you we were going to send you to this conversion therapy. There's this holy man. He's going to fix you and then you'll get married and have a kid. And I, until then, did not know that Hindu conversion therapy exists. I knew it existed in the christian uh, framework because of boy erased and uh, memoir so once it it became safe i went back and through my queer community and ended up talking to men who were forced into conversion therapy and i am just so grateful i escaped it by having the privilege of living in the U.S. and being able to go to Canada because if that didn't happen um, I would be there today and not here talking to you.
1: Oh my gosh and tell listeners a little bit more about what that means conversion therapy and how it plays out in India.
3: It's uh, the different branches of Hinduism that each depending on the kind of god they worship they sort of and it is so horrible because the original Hindu as the book talks about they're so welcoming of and celebratory of queer identities. But conversion therapy takes a very watered-down conservative view that is sort of being perpetuated in India now. So like in the book, there is this one god-man who worships Shiva. And it's this idea of we're going to get you to the point where you'll be possessed by this Hindu god. And he's sort of celebrated as an icon of masculinity, just as Hanuman, who's in the book, is and these gods will possess you and make you real men, and that involves like sort of like something which almost borders on black magic, but it's this idea of like listening to these chants, striking you physically with sacred gritty sacred ash, and then getting you to sort of reorient your thought process in a way that you find women attractive and not men attractive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of these places also, as you know, described in the book, they they uh, get you to watch straight porn because the idea is like if you look at straight porn. After, like, you know, you go through this sacred ceremony in the morning and then in the afternoon, you watch straight porn. It just feels the irony of it is just so lost in the people who set these systems up and you, and then the test to make sure that you are fully converted. Some places are not as extreme, but some are where they literally force you to have sex with a woman. And then if you're not able to do it, then you have to go through the whole process again.
1: Oh. It's just amazing. It's just the cruelty that exists is is mind-boggling. It's Mm -hmm. all these things are happening while we go about our days. You know, it's just awful. So
3: awful. Yeah. And the the whole same-sex marriage debate that's happening in India right now, there is like such a huge push to make it happen and some are hopeful it will happen. But society, society, it's a long way away from getting anywhere close to acceptance because there are people, public figures are openly saying, well, is the next thing you'll promote is marriage between men and their dogs? And like it's that kind of rhetoric is being perpetuated. As if those are so close. I know.
1: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Although I do love my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. She's she's right behind me. But anyway, so tell me a little bit about the writing process of this book and what went into that for you and when you came up with the idea and where you were when you wrote it all and like, tell me all that good stuff.
3: When I started thinking about the book, I was working for Google because like a lot of South Asians, who did my undergraduate in computer science. I wasn't satisfied with it. And then I found this street theater troupe and I just wanted to travel with them and write for them. Something about that fascinated me. So I took a three-month leave from Google and loss of pay. And as you can imagine, my dad was not super pleased. He said street performers, like those people who go around performing in small places and collect money in a hat. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, he said, you took loss of pay with Google to do that. He was horrified, but I did it. (laughs) And they travel along the Ganges from, you know, the point where the river merges with the ocean to the point of origin. So spending those nearly two and a half months with them, just traveling, watching them perform, watching them do their makeup rituals and writing for them. And the traveling itself, we would travel, the main uh, the theater chief would drive this truck and the actors would sleep in the back of the bed of the truck as we traveled. So just having that close experience with these actors in their lives uh, was just such a powerful experience. It transformed me in ways that I wasn't prepared for um, and I knew that's what I wanted this character to be, an actor with a street performing group. So that was the origin of the story and then there was Mark who at that early draft was just an American tourist with no historical association with India Uh, then I came out um, in my professor's workshop and then I basically discarded about 80% of the book and wrote it from scratch again because I had to change what the starting point was. I had to change everything because the character looks at the world through this lens of queer existence at this point. Uh, So that was a major rewrite. And in that part, yeah, like I said, the the queer desire sort of becomes a lens with which she looks at the world. The idea of safety has changed at that point. And then I did several drafts. After my master's, I did a PhD and I never really... Uh, with an undergraduate in computer science, didn't know what academic writing was like. So I took a short break from my book to sort of acclimatize and then picked it up again. The later drafts really focused a lot on, on the prose and the writing at a sentence level. But once also I knew that it was a queer love story, I wanted Mark to have a history rooted in India. So I started looking at the history of migrations to India, and I discovered the history of Jewish migrations, the three big waves that came to India, one a very, very long time back, one in the 16th or 17th century, and then, of course, during World War II, and the southern Indian town of Cochin, where Mark's family is from, in the book. I went there, I got a research grant and went and spent three weeks there, and the community was incredibly welcoming. And very excited that I was writing a story set there so that research experience was very helpful because then I could really give Mark a history not all of it made it into the book but just writing from the space of knowing was very helpful one like fun fact about this book is the um, MFA draft so it was my MFA thesis this novel an older version of it and it was 180,000 words and close to 850 pages
1: oh my gosh
3: and now it's, of course, almost half that length. But I remember when I went to my, to my thesis defense, I didn't want my committee to know it was that long. So I reduced the font size, I reduced the margin and the uh Paragraph spacing, and to Sabina, my prof, when she she was my thesis chair, when she walked into this meeting room, she waved my manuscript and said, "This is not a, like this is much more than five fifty pages because that's what it condensed to." And I basically broke my MFA system because after I graduated, they put a page length, and they also specified all the criteria for <laughs> uh, it has to be double spaced and twelve point font. So yeah, I told Sabine, I wonder how that happened. She's like, Yeah, I wonder how that happened. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, yes. it's quite a, a like quite an intense journey. And I feel like me taking this journey of working on this book has um Changed me significantly. It's changed my closest friendships for the best in the best possible way. And almost all the characters in this book are fictional, with the exception of Sue, the best friend. She's based on my best friend, who's also called Sue. And she was my first friend I came out to. And she was just completely embracing me without any questions, any judgment. So, yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, what a story. (laughs) And tell me why you decided to get a PhD.
3: Part of it was I uh, knew, I, was, I was working in tech and Google had given me a three-year sabbatical and they said I could finish my MFA and come back, but I really loved teaching. And so I decided to not do that and stay in academia. And I realized uh, a PhD would really help me, you know, stay in academia, but also stay in the U.S. with an F1 student visa. So when I was in my master's program, I started sitting in on various classes in the humanities, and I was drawn to this one class in uh, comparative literature, which is a class on refugee studies, um, and I really liked the professor, Moira Inguilheri, and um, I ended up deciding, I knew I, when I took a class, I knew that's what I wanted to focus on. Um, so when I went and told her my interest in doing a PhD program, she introduced me to multiple lenses in which you can look at the issues that refugees face migrating into the country and I discovered refugee art, the art that refugees have migrated from east to the west to use that sort of post-colonial language. And then I, I knew that would be my dissertation topic, like even before I started my PhD. So I think it was just more, it started with the intent of wanting to stay in the U.S. and teach because I love teaching. Um, and then when I discovered this project of, about contemporary refugee art, I just knew that's what I wanted to work with.
1: Wow. And so now do you teach classes on refugee art?
3: I do, and actually, uh, eventually, once I was t- to the end of my PhD program, Moira, my prof, and I we co-taught a class on migration and the communities it forms, because oftentimes we look at migration refugees, especially they end up leaving old communities, but they also forge new communities in their new country. So that class focuses on literature and art that talks about that. And uh, I will be—I was teaching in Providence until this fall. But uh, starting spring, I just got a job with Michigan State, where I'll be teaching creative writing and film, and I definitely intend bringing refugee writing into those classes.
1: Wow, that's wonderful. Wow busy. You have a book coming out, new jobs, great, very exciting. And what are the plans for bringing the book into the world? Are you touring everywhere or how are you, what are you excited about?
3: Yeah, I have my book launch event. The book is coming out on July 11th and there's a book launch event on July 14th at Books Are Magic, which I'm so excited about because it's one of my favorite bookstores. I remember when the bookshop opened, I went from, I was in Amherst, Massachusetts and I went to Books Are Magic exclusively to, I went to Brooklyn just to go to that bookshop which is like the nerdiest thing to do but that's what it did and Emma Straub the writer who owns that bookshop she just cycled into the bookshop and I just like completely fanboyed and I said I made this trip only for this bookshop and she was very sweet because she sent me home with a bunch of free books and a free tote bag so it feels like a full circle that my first event is there so uh, I'm doing that and then I'm uh, doing an event in Provincetown at the Provincetown bookstore and then I'm doing something in Cambridge on July 24th I'm doing an event at the Harvard bookstore there so those will be my summer east coast uh, oh and then one in now the Mark Twain house in Hartford and that would bring the summer to the end in the fall uh, I'll be working more in um, I'll be doing a few events in the Midwest since I'll be based out of Michigan And then hopefully the winter and the spring, we'll look at the West Coast uh, that hopefully the book does well and I can still do those events. Wonderful. That's great. Flatiron Books has been so wonderful to me. They've just been so supportive and like really excited. My editor, Carolyn Bleak, from the time she picked up the book to now, she's just been such a great champion for the book. And my publicist as well, who's queer, writes queer stuff and really champions queer stories. So it's been it's such a dream come true for me as a debut novelist to work with such a wonderful team.
1: Oh, that's great. I love hearing stories like that. What advice do you have for aspiring authors?
3: I think something I discovered, it's important to be receptive to feedback. And at the same time, while you receive feedback, also be clear about your vision for the story. So it's maintaining the delicate balance of having clarity of your, what you want your story to be. What are the core values of your writing? Because that way, if you end up getting feedback that doesn't align with your core values, you need not like embrace it. But if you're open-minded, you will get feedback that completely changes your story as it did in my case. I mean, sometimes I've had like really unhelpful feedback. Like somebody read my story, Ali Draft, and you know, the scene where Shagun is having food with his parents on the kitchen floor. He just lashed out at me and said, Why do you have to exoticize your own culture? Why do you have to show people sitting on the floor and eating with their hands? Why can't you show like Indians going to offices and standing around a water fountain and talking? And I said, Well. Those are not mutually exclusive realities. This is not exotic. Like even now when I go back to India, it's such a question of comfort. My mom and I still sit on the floor and eat because it's it feels familiar, it's intimate. And then I would, when I was working for Google, I'd then get up and go and stand at the water fountain and talk to my colleagues. So I think just making sure that you are open to feedback, but also know what your core values are and keeping feedback that works for you and letting the rest go. Excellent. That's excellent advice.
1: Wonderful. And do you think there'll be more books in your future? Short stories, books? What do you have
3: to? Yeah, I mean, I uh, my agent, Chris, is right now trying to place a few of my short stories in different literary journals, but I am working on my second novel because it's, as it's sort of hitting the world, I'm doing everything I can to make sure that, you know, it reaches as many readers as possible. But there's only so much control I have and I don't want to obsess over it. It's that very, this ideology of do the work and then let go, uh, which I'm trying to embrace. And some That's helping me with that is working on a completely different project because I think for me longer projects that I work on every single day uh, allow me to have that emotional relationship with the work that I can go back to every morning and write. So I'm working on my second novel now.
1: Good for you. Can you can you share anything about it or not really?
3: Oh, I I can uh, because I've already pitched it to my agent and (laughs) liked it. It's very different from this book, uh, but it has the same themes of found family and community. But it's set in this future, it's a fantasy novel, and it's set in this future where America's white population has become the minority. So to uh, there, there's a right-wing government in power at that point. And so to fix that, they decide to offer political asylum to vampires. So... Uh, <laughs> The vampires are coming into Ellis Island and they're being injected with this anti, with this serum which takes away their hunting instinct. So it follows this one Irish vampire to begin with and then there are these blood markets that open up where vampires can go buy blood. And wow. it also has the perspective of this guy who becomes his boyfriend who's a Kashmiri doctor. And at this point in the future, uh, Kashmir has fallen. So there are a lot of Kashmiri refugees in the US and the US is not giving them refugee and asylum status. They are just undocumented. So it just follows these two communities, the undocumented Kashmiris and the vampires who are now immigrating and the kind of friendships and tensions that are forged between them.
1: Wow. My gosh. Vampire blood market. You never know What's going to come out of people's mouths, Who knows? <laughs> people's minds, people, people's fingertips. It's amazing. Well, good luck with that. And congratulations on your book. Sea elephants. Beautiful. So amazing. Congratulations and wishing you all the best.
3: Thank you so much. And thank you for talking to me. This was amazing.
1: Okay. No, it's a joy. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books.